Hey folks, welcome back to the DC3 cast, the most popular spinoff of our upcoming Simpsons podcast that we just spent the last hour talking about. <laughs> I am Brian, with me as always are Zach and Vince. We're going to talk about the Simpsons. I'm sorry, the number is 912. Two. <laughs> oh man, if you just a general note to our listeners, if you want to make your life better, just watch the Simpsons seasons like 3 through 8 and uh yeah, you'll thank us later. Um, all right, anyway, we're here to talk about DC Comics. But first, there's a little bit of news that broke since we last recorded, and that is the news that Julie and Shauna Benson are off of Green Arrow. Um, effective, I believe, January. They are replaced by the hacktivist team of... Uh, I always mess up these names. Jackson Lansing and Colin... Kelly. Kelly, thank you. And um, we were talking before we went on the air about how this seems like something that used to happen at DC quite a bit, where a creative team would be taken off a book before their you know con- contracted arc was uh, was complete. And it, we were sort of debating the merits of of Green Arrow as of late, but just sort of in broad strokes, how do you guys feel about the Bensons being off this book? Zach, why don't you go first? Um, I think it's a little. I think it's a little sad. They, I've mostly okay. I said I. I thought the first couple issues were okay. I kind of checked out towards the end of the arc, and I actually sort of liked that Roy issue a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I I kind of liked their Green Arrow run better than the Birds of Prey run, at least. So. Yeah, and I and I would say I liked the the Birds of Prey run probably better than both of you guys did. I it wasn't like amazing or great, but I I thought it was for the most part a pretty pretty solid title. Um I think I mean there are certainly writers at DC s- several of them doing worse work than the Bensons did and um I think I think they wrote really solid like street level or like basic cape comic style stories pretty streamlined and i don't think any of the storytelling really aimed all that high but i think i think for the most part you could usually you could count on a dependable story out of it like you yeah, you were not hate, you were not hating the comic as you were reading it you know mm-hmm. i don't mean that to sound like a backhanded compliment cuz because some of those some of those arcs I really liked, but yeah, I mean I'm about to pay them a backhanded compliment too, which is that you know they came from the world of television, and I think that a lot of their writing was reminiscent of like that, um, those sort of sci-fi procedural type shows that you get every now and then, where it's you know a monster of the week type scenario where nothing is really groundbreaking, but everything's written pretty well. And everything works within the confines of sort of a standard genre-based hour-long TV show. You know what I mean? Like, it, it, their writing was very serviceable. And um, 
you know, I, again, I was not super thrilled when they were coming on to Green Arrow because I, I, I would want something a little bit different for a Green Arrow title. But their run was was fine so far, and it just seems odd to me because DC covets, and we've talked about this before a little bit. DC covets writers that come from places that aren't comics. You know, Jeff King, if you guys recall, was uh, brought in to do Convergence, which was their biggest event in a couple of years at that time. And they brought in a novelist who had never professionally written a comic before to do that. And there have been a number of people who have come in from outside of the comics world that DC brings in. And so not only is that unusual, but they were on Batgirl and the Birds of Prey for 20-something issues, right? Yeah, something like Maybe. that. Or eighteen, eighteen at the at the least, and then they were rewarded with another with a Green Arrow run, and it seems to me like if DC wasn't happy with what they were doing, then they probably shouldn't have given them that Green Arrow run. And if they were really that displeased with their Green Arrow, and they've been working with them for a couple of years now, it seems like they could have taken steps to remedy this without firing them off the book. It's it's weird that this isn't the first like kind of sudden creative shakeup that we've gotten recently. You're talking about the about Ben Percy, huh? Yeah. You know, now that you mention it, yeah, what happened to Ben Percy? So the so you know, the Nightwing thing like all of a sudden he was off at issue 50 unexpectedly. Right. And nobody really knows, but it kind of seems like they they were just doing a different thing with Dick that wasn't something that he was interested in. Yeah, and I think he also may be working on something with his novels as well. Like he has a new series that may maybe is being optioned for something as well. Hmm. So he, he may be busy with that, but it just was very sudden. Can I, can and, I just... Go oh, go, keep go, no, keep going, Zach. I, I thought, uh, sorry, I thought. Well, you I was, I was just gonna make the comparison. This, this, both of these things feel very reminiscent of like New Fifty Two era sudden shakeups. Yeah, um, I'm gonna, I'm gonna pull something completely out of my butt here, and you guys tell me if I'm. Uh... Before you do that, can I say one quick thing? Yeah. Um, what I was gonna say was there's a rumor that Uncle Rich posted this week that there are three different creative teams working on Wonder Woman right now <laughs> and that none of them know about the others and that even DC doesn't know which will be published yet. And that sounds like the most New 52 Wonder Woman in a while. Yes. I thought G. Willow Wilson was doing Wonder Woman. She is. Yes, but apparently there are two other teams also working on Wonder Woman stories right now. Well, well, um, we, we know G. Willow Wilson's is being published. Yes, but the other ones apparently are unsure of it. But anyway, that doesn't on. that doesn't seem. I don't know. I I'd be surprised if it's that um, exact situation as exactly as described. You know. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, what what was your out, out your ass? I was gonna say it just it just kind of seems to me like, you know, Rebirth came in and a couple of the writers that were given like books that early on had seemed to have a lot to do with Rebirth were Ben Percy and the Bensons. And 
and now they're kind of the, like those two are leaving. Mm-hmm. You're hearing about these like shifts where, you know, if Johns is kind of falling out of favor or doing or doing side stuff that doesn't so much matter in the main DCU anymore, it just makes me wonder if like they are just slipping back into a new Fifty Two mindset. Yeah, you know what I'm saying. Yeah, but again, like the thing that strikes me as odd is that these are two creative teams that were just moved with some with some bit of excitement around them. You know, uh-huh. a lot of times there are things that happen, like for instance, like the hacktivist guys taking over Green Arrow. Those things happen without a press release. Those things happen without DC trying to drum up interviews and that sort of thing to make these things known. Ben Percy and the Bensons were both made to be a big deal coming onto the books they were coming onto. It was exciting new directions and they were all it, it was it was something that DC really got behind. And it seems like if they weren't happy with those guys and their writing, it seems it just seems to be very odd that they would promote them to higher profile books only to quickly tire of them. Right. You know what I just thought of, and this is like not really founded in much, and I don't really even like want to take it too seriously, but I think there's an interesting parallel between like how fragmented it seems that the DC extended universe films are becoming, you know, very standalone. Like DC is realizing they can't really do a good shared universe. Or at least they need to start over again. And how fractured the comics feel now. Like how many kind of like micro universes that we sort of have, even though it's all technically happening together. You've got like the Snyder Tynion corner. You've got the Tom King stuff. You've got the Benda stuff. And then you've got the John stuff coming. You've got Morrison off doing his Green Lantern it's it's all very creator specific that's interesting i i wonder if that leads to more editorial control or less cuz you would think off the top of your head it would mean less it would mean less because you think the editors have to make sure everything is straight in all the books that are connecting with each other Right, but I could see where it could cause a lot of confusion exactly, if one yeah. writer wants a kind of like side, you know, second, third tier book to align with what they're doing. You know, right now, Green Arrow is kind of a Justice League tangential book, but maybe somebody else has an idea. Maybe Tom King wants to do something with Green Arrow. And so it's going to get swiped <sighs> from the Justice League banner over to the Tom King banner. And I don't mean, I'm using him as the bad example again. I don't necessarily mean to. You could just, it, only because that makes more sense. You could just easily say Bendis has like an idea for Green Arrow. I don't know. And he wants to do right. something with it. Oh, man. Well, it seems to me, what's interesting is that both the Bensons and Ben Percy are dealing with characters that are very affected by Heroes in Crisis. Mm-hmm. I guess Nightwing technically is spinning out of Batman versus spinning out of Heroes in Crisis, but all of but you know, yeah, 
it's it's of that tone and it's Tom King and it's yeah you know I used to I used to be a guy who would say like I don't I don't really care about continuity or that everything lines up and makes sense and to a point I still don't but just experiencing reading every single book since Rebirth began I found out about myself that I actually prefer like that first six months to a year of rebirth felt really special. And right now DC just feels really different. And I think that's reflected in the, in the way that we talk about these books too, you know? Yeah. uh, And I think kind of to Zach's earlier point, I think that there are still those micro universes that are working for me. Oh yeah. But there are also way like, you know, it used to be when we were talking about, every rebirth title there were only geez three maybe four books that we legitimate ongoings that we were legitimately groaning about every week mm-hmm. or, or or even every month you know you, you were talking you know we'd we'd bitch about batman we'd bitch about harley quinn and batman beyond suicide squad and suicide squad now maybe maybe that's it Yeah, you know, and now there are we. I mean, I mean, and this is maybe tipping our hand a little bit. You know, there were some decent comics this week, but for us to come up with five books that we needed to talk about, I think we we pretty much said there were three we needed to talk about this week. Mm-hmm. That would never have happened a year ago. Yeah, or two years ago. Because mm-hmm. everything felt so connected, you needed to talk about this stuff because there was there was so much more happening. I just hope that this is not a sign of things to come. Yeah, so that was going to be my next question. You know, the the three of us have been talking on this show because we know how DC works. <clears throat> DC is very, like, cyclical, and every, you know, four or five years, they do some mega event, and it has some some sort of it's not it's not always a full on reboot but it's got some sort of reboot quality to it right um and i think we've been talking on the show about how you know oh doomsday clock is going to end with something like that or uh you know rebirth has some endpoint that's coming eventually and we keep talking about it and it keeps getting pushed back by like maybe delays or whatever but the more that this kind of sh- creative shuffling goes on and the more that these books become more fractured from one another, I wonder if that's even the case at all. If if, And I know we've talked about this before too, but I think like it's becoming crystallized to me, my opinion on it, that whatever Johns is building towards with Doomsday Clock is not what it was going to be. Not, not necessarily in that book, but for the DC universe as a whole. You know what I mean? It's not yes. it's not going to be what it was before, what the plan was. Yeah, uh for a friend of the show, Walter Richardson asked me today if um if if DC has anything planned for James Robinson right now. He says he knows he's doing, you know, like a rap a fill in arc here, he's wrapping up a book here. And I said that I really think that they wanted him to do JSA when Doomsday Clock was over and brought him over so that he would be like a few months into his into his tenure when Doomsday Clock wrapped up, 
well, because Doomsday Clock is taking literally three times longer than it was supposed to, uh-huh. now they have to like wait around and find stuff for him. And I wonder if that's sort of what's happening with some of these other characters too. If there's big Nightwing and Green Arrow stuff that they that, that was supposed to be happening, you know, come January, February, March, but because of various delays, they had to tell those creators, uh, no, we're not going to be doing that right now. We need to be doing something else. And maybe they just felt like, well, I don't want to be a part of that then. I signed on to do this story. I don't want to tread water for six months before I can tell that story. Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. It's funny because there are so many parts of the DC Universe right now that I am legitimately jazzed about, whether it's the Justice League books or the Bendis books or, like, you know, the promise of, of more young animal or the wild storm stuff. There, there is still stuff that I, that I am legitimately excited about when I open my email and I see that we get our, our review copies in there. That's, that's a great, great moment. But I have to say, the overall tenor, and we've talked about this plenty even tonight, the overall tenor of reading DC Comics right now is the lowest for me it's been since pre-Rebirth. I can kind of agree with that, but the quality of the books, the good books, are still so much higher, I think. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes, I agree. I'm just talking about like the tone, like how I feel when I'm reading these books. The frustrations yeah. that I feel. I guess, yeah. I'm not saying the books are as bad. They are certainly not, uh, for the most part. No, many of them are very, very good. Yeah. Well, let's talk about a very, very good one. Okay, let's do it. Is that Action Comics number four? Number 1004? Yeah, 1004, yeah. Uh, Written by Brian Bendis, illustrated by Ryan Sook. Mm-hmm. Um, mm, that art. Oof. Well, the thing we have to say before we get any further is uh, Clark Horny Michael. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, he, he. They throw down, <laughs> but it's so tastefully and, up and down and up and down. Yeah, I mean it was tasteful, but but man. <laughs> I mean, they're boning down. All of Brody Bruce's questions are answered. <laughs> that Brian that is... Michael Bendis has a predilection for <laughs> superhero sex organs. <laughs> oh, Stanley. Uh, but yeah, no, this... Um, so, so this issue is... Uh, it, it is very good. I'll give you a about that. It also, though, here is where we see a lot of the, like... Bendis tropes popping up more in this book. This feels the most Bendis issue of Action Comics so far. Um, Just something like Perry White saying, see what I did there? (laughs) I feel like that's a very Bendis thing. And there's a number of moments in this issue that that feel just, you know, incredibly on brand for Bendis. Mm -hmm. But I still think that he's writing such strong work right now that I'm not annoyed by the tendencies that would have bugged me a couple of years ago. 
Well, and I think I think one of the keys for me is that a lot of that stuff does take place around the Daily Planet. And I feel like that level of banter and that tenor of dialogue is perfect for a crowded newsroom like that. Yeah, it, it's, it, it can be Aaron Sorkin-y. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, right. Which we know that, that Bendis loves that. And yeah, it's, you know, having that in the newsroom versus having pages and pages of Avengers doing the office style interviews and you call that your comic, you know, there's a difference there, right? Yeah. Um, this, I mean, I think part of the key to Bendis's success at DC is not only is he being paired with great artists all the time including Ryan Sook, yeah. but, but he is writing for the artist. It's not like, you know, the stable of, of artists that he had at Marvel, a lot of them were really good too, but I felt like he fell in love with his dialogue over there and gave the artists less to do. The artists have plenty to do here. Look at the, the, the page of Superman and Lois boning down. Like how much of that is suggested by, Suggested by the art in interesting ways, without the, without being weird and and yeah, it's tasteful, like you said, Zach. Yeah, yeah, and I also I wanted since we're talking about art, I wanted to mention the page where he's flying to Lois and meets her, and just how well paced that is mm-hmm. with the hands, with the hands, and yeah, yeah, and then the next page where you like see him from the front, then it turns. And then they meet like, yeah, that's a good page. Yeah. And the, the, the big, like the big kiss in the middle of the street, I'm, that's Superman, you know, mm-hmm. like to me, that's Superman and Lois right there. You're in the middle of Metropolis. That's iconic. Yeah. So well done. That's page 10 mm-hmm. in our PDFs. Yeah. And this is a small thing. And I'm probably, you guys can call me on this if it's a little, if it's a step too far, but you know, we can, we complain about how like Lois is one of those characters that if you don't know it's Lois, a lot of times artists can just draw her as like generic woman with dark hair. Mm-hmm. I felt like Sook's Lois looked like Lois. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with that. Yep. <laughs> this is our favorite uh, running bit. That's not a, that's not a joke <laughs> that we're like, we're... <laughs> Who lo- which one looks like Lois? Yeah, we don't say that about any other character, but but uh, but you're absolutely right, Zach. I think this looks like Lois. Yeah. Um, couple of things I wanted to to bring up here: the idea of Perry White asking Superman if he has cancer. Oh, that's great. <laughs> yeah, is, per- is a perfect character beat. Um, that whole scene where where Superman shows up the, at the Daily Planet and it's like completely different from Clark being there. Yes, it felt that felt more than anything else like a Christopher Reeve movie. Yes, one hundred percent. Yeah. Um, yeah. I I I can't believe how well Bendis has gotten inside Superman and yet his Superman is not on the surface. You can't say he's writing Superman like so-and-so wrote him. It's pretty unique to Ben. It's like there's a, there's a panel that would have never happened in another Superman comic. 
And that's he's in the Daily Planet office. He sees the framed picture of the oh. Superman dead headline, and he says, "The good old days to Jimmy." <laughs> and then Jimmy says, "I know, right?" Yeah. Like, and and then he has that like Jim Halpert look at the camera yeah. <laughs> in the next panel, and um, but like that that's a uniquely Bendis thing, but it feels perfectly Superman-y too. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I isn't that isn't that a variant cover for uh Heroes in Crisis also? That yeah. Superman Dead thing. Yeah. Like, and that, I, yeah. That exact and I think that Sook picture. that Sook did as well. Like right. I think that's Sook's that's cover. Why it's in there. Yeah. Yeah. Um and then the other st- thing that Bendis is doing in this issue that I love that I don't want to forget to mention before we stop talking about this is um one of my other problems with comics and Bendis comics over at, at Marvel um, was that he liked to, he liked to, to take character moments or like arguments between characters or, or betrayals between characters and just blow them way out of proportion. So like, I can't think of anything specific, but like characters would get into arguments over in Avengers books for like the, you know, these are superheroes and they're getting into arguments for like what seems like dumb reasons or like really minuscule reasons or or things that heroes can overcome, you know. And when you talk about disrupting Clark and Lois's relationship, you know, that was kind of teased in the months ahead of this. I don't blame people for getting worried like, oh, God, he's going to break up the Superman family or whatever, you know. And yet I felt like the way that he handled that was so perfect. So like, first of all, they show the, the lowest Lex like gossip picture photo uh-huh. and Bendis sidesteps it by having Clark just realize that, Oh, this is clearly a misunderstanding and he trusts Lois, you know? Right. Yeah. In, in a worse writer's hands or even a previous version of Bendis that would have been drawn out for like, excruciating yes. episodes rather issues yeah. right excruciating drama that is dumb and wouldn't pay off and instead pays it off by like showing the trust that they've built over the you don't have to mess with that you know yeah same with uh lois wanting to change the dynamic of the relationship a little bit because she she wants to focus on writing her book and getting back into it you know and she knows that superman's got to be away all the time rescuing people and like again in the worst writer's hands that could be a really annoying conflict from the get-go and instead you know clark is a little bit disappointed or taken aback by it but then like ultimately they realize well this is going to work you know and maybe in future issues it's not going to work but like right it's not immediately taken to 11 not only that but business diffuses the situation almost instantly where Lois says, like, just for the record, we're not breaking up. Uh-huh. Like, she she flat out says, like, this is not about us being unhappy in our relationship. It's about, you know, X, Y, Z. It was just really well handled. And even the ex- explanation for why she hasn't gotten in touch with him was a relatively calm explanation for what, for what happened there. Mm-hmm. Um... And, you know, John being off the table for a while is something that I think we all expected. And, you know, we have the Avengers of the Super Sons still happening out there. But this gives me real hope 
that when John comes back, he will be like, the fact that she said he that he hit puberty as soon as he left. Mm-hmm. Like it means we're gonna get a very different John when he returns. And even though I love the John Kent we had for the last couple of years, I think it's ultimately good for the character to have him grow up a bit and be able to then slide into the Teen Titans more easily and mm-hmm. to not be the little kid that he was. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And which I think he is set to come back pretty soon, if I recall correctly. I think he's due to show up in Superman here in the next few months. Oh, baby. He's going to be... Uh... Well, I won't, never mind. I won't say. <laughs> uh, I, I was going to say John Horney, Michael, because yeah, uh, well, pu- of puberty and all that. Yeah. Well, I, I'm sure he is. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, essentially, uh, Jorel and John are living out the Sloop John B in space. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay, Grandpa. Yeah. Hey. I feel so broke up. I want to go home. <laughs> That's top five song of all time, Vince. No, oh, we're we're gonna take this off the show. All right. No, we're gonna talk about this offline. That's listen to that, that is listen, ridiculous. Listen to that recording. It's it's fucking perfect. That is ridiculous. Top five perfect. song all time. And if if only Bendis had read Dan Jurgens. <laughs> Dr. Oz crossover, we wouldn't even be having this conversation. You just called the Dr. Oz, by the way. I did that on purpose. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> All right, let's talk about Books of Magic number one. The uh, the final of the four initial Sandman Universe books, written by Cat Howard, illustrated by Tom Fowler. Zach, I feel like Vince and I dominated that conversation, so why don't you start talking about this issue? Did this issue feel extremely light to you all absolutely slight even light i would uh, say light not slight okay um i don't i'm not familiar with cat howard do you all know what their background is i believe a um, novelist talk amongst yourselves yeah fantasy science fiction horror author yeah i just i it was extremely noticeable to me how um especially once we got past kind of the like opening flashback sequence which i really enjoyed a lot how each panel only had one word balloon in it for the most part and they were pretty big panels which is a it's really like not until you get into the uh, scene where he is in the office of that um, principal or teacher or whatever, or it kind of becomes a little bit more dialogue heavy. It it just felt very un. It felt very abnormal to the kind of thing I'm used to seeing, especially from the Sandman universe line so far. Yeah, which can I say, I really appreciate it. Yeah. Yes, I. I, I'm with you, Vince. I thought this was a refreshing read compared to the other Salmon Universe titles. I mean, Zach, did, are you saying that well, you didn't like? I'm that not about saying it? I didn't like it. It felt. It just felt. At first, as I was reading it, I was like, "I'm gonna blaze through this comic." It doesn't feel like thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I rolled it up. 
lit it. Dipped it in CBD oil. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, I felt like not a lot is going to happen here. This doesn't feel like good use of space. But I feel like a lot still happened. I feel like it, the art was able to convey a lot of things. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I also kind of feel like not very much happened in this issue. I'm I'm kind of I'm a little mixed on this one. Interesting. I think it's my second favorite after the the dreaming. And I think I think it's because more than those other books, we I mean I liked I liked those other books a lot too. But this one stops and takes time to really really inject some character in just a few characters. It doesn't overload you with a ton of stuff, hardly any lore, right? It doesn't it does the thing. So the thing that we complained a little bit about the witching hour or at least Brian did and I agree with him and I I don't remember exactly how you feel about it uh Zach but like it would be easy to fill this book or even just the end of this issue with lots of lore about like the books of magic and like what you know this book that Tim Hunter's given but instead it's blank and they're basically like uh you know it'll fill when it needs to you know like we'll figure this out as we go along. And it was so refreshing to me to read a book that spent more time, like doing character work, setting up some gags. There were some really funny lines in this book, like slyly funny things. Um, I'm thinking about uh, like that, witch. Tim Hunter's describing a fidget spinner and the way that he describes it just sounds like a yo-yo to the switch. Mm -hmm. Right. Or not a not wit not a witch. I think it's just like a homeless person. But well, I think maybe she is a she's something, right? You she's think like, she's you think she's magical? I mean, she no, well, no, she doesn't know that he's this, magical. Isn't this a crossover with Home Alone too? <laughs> yeah, so I think Hetty is a pre-established like Vertigo character, though. That yes, that could be. Yep. And then like uh, you know, and then the character yeah. beat when the character beat when he comes home. And his dad's sitting there, and they talk about the fight that he was in. And after Tim Hunter's going upstairs already, his dad says, fighting won't bring her back, you know, can't win that. That's that's not, like, a totally fresh um, dynamic. You know, the, the, the boy who's troubled and lost one of his parents, and the other parent is kind of despondent and depressed. That's that's nothing new. But the brevity of that line and that the 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 tightness of that exchange just really worked for me. And there were tons of little bits throughout this issue that really worked in that same way. Um, so I, I, I know what you're saying, Zach. And I felt that when I was reading it, like I, as I was reading it, I was like, wow, this is, there are not a lot of words here and I'm grateful for that. Yeah. And I got every, And I got everything I needed out of it. I, I, I don't mind. I, I don't mind that maybe, it felt like the book had too much room to breathe because I think as a rule, vertigo books or Sandman books trend the other way, you know, Mm -hmm. you know, you, you mentioned that it's your second favorite and 
Honestly, I think I maybe agree with you mm. when I think about it. It's my favorite. Ah. Uh, of the bunch. Um, but so I uh I forget. Do have either of you guys I know Vince you have a little bit. I don't know if you have Zach. Are any of you guys big D and D guys or role playing guys in general? Um, I I have dabbled. I'm I'm a I enjoy role playing a lot. I've not done as much of like the tabletop variety. Okay. Yeah, so I I have not either, but I'm a, a big fan. I just realized of... how that may have come off. <laughs> <laughs> LOL. <laughs> um, I, I'm a big fan of the Adventure Zone podcast, which is a uh, a role playing podcast, and I've I've been pl- I've played a few times, and it's something I want to get more involved in. Oh, and... Patreon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's our answer our, to everything. Our D and D, our our DC role playing tabletop role playing podcast. We talk will... about we talk about Patreon content as if it's a bag of holding for time for like free <laughs> exactly. time. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, what I was gonna say is, uh, Tom Fowler, who illustrates this, did a a Tumblr and then a Kickstarter book called Dungeons and Dragons and Doodles, and it was all his drawings of characters that were in D&D games he was playing. And as I was reading this book, there were so many moments, not just in the art, but in the writing also, that to me felt like something out of a good role-playing game. Like Tim Hunter being given a book that says, like, when you're ready, the words will appear in here. That's something straight out of a D&D campaign. Like, this book to me felt very much like the start of a of an RPG in the best possible way. That's an interesting take. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I liked I. The more we talk about it, I yeah, I did like this issue quite a bit. Of the the three kind of non, I, I mean, I clearly see the dreamy as like the mainline one, and it's still the one that I enjoy the most, definitely. Um. But I think this one is pretty fairly ahead of the other two for me. I think this might be my Shade the Changing Woman. Ah. Or Shade the Changing Girl. Uh, Tom Fowler tweeted before, uh, two days until I start my campaign of explaining to people that Tim Hunter predates Harry Potter. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. You're a wizard, Tim. Yeah. I really enjoyed this. I think Fowler's art in the first half of the book, when it's all the flashback, was incredible. Mm-hmm. All the different styles that he brings to it um, were really, really enjoyable and just a a visual treat. And the rest of the issue looked good, too, but it's hard to top. Like there's it's It's page five in our PDF when there's like four or five different scenes that are ripped out of different books. Like... One of them is an engraving of a piece of stone. One of them looks like a strip from a comic book. One looks, you know, it's just all these different styles of art all thrown together. Mm-hmm. And it all looks just so amazing. And then he comes crashing into the real world and Fowler pulls back a bit and everything becomes a little bit more mundane and a little bit more normal. But that's obviously on purpose. Yep. Uh, I thought Fowler did a great job expressing Tim's emotions on his face i think tim is one of the more emotional emotionally uh readable characters we've had in a while at dc 
where he's just wearing his emotions on his on his face in, in every panel. You know exactly how he's feeling. And uh, yeah, like I said, to me, this really did, did have that RPG feel. And that excites me for the book going forward. What? Uh, yeah, well said. Uh, what New 52 book was Tim Hunter in again? Was that Justice League Dark? Justice League Dark, yeah. The yeah. Jeff Lemire mm-hmm. uh, run. That's right. Which was not the best. Yeah. I in my opinion. Justice League Dark being a book that I love the concept of, but didn't love the issues of as much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, this is very good. And, you know, it's even interesting how much choice plays a factor in the story. So that doubles chooses, down on your... He chooses to remember, or or he chooses magic, rather. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and then he's stuck in this situation where, like, for the time being, he can't, you know? Yeah. And, he, and he's miserable. And, like, the real world is bearing down on him. It's it's yeah it's really good stuff. See, it's really like the comic presents a really minimalist take on this, but it's also it's the art and the and the minimalism is like fraught with emotion. I think. I agree. All right, let's talk about Justice League Odyssey number two. Written by Joshua Williamson, illustrated by Stepan Sayik. And, uh, you know, just as a recap, Darkseid is. Of course. Uh, no more. No more. That's the best part of the issue. The <laughs> opening page. So, Zach, you have been the, the harshest on this book uh, thus far. Is there anything you want to say about it before we get into the our discussion of maybe the, the more... Minute details did this issue. Well, can I start with a minute detail? Can I start with a minute (laughs) detail? (laughs) Um, So on that first page, first page, second panel, that seems to be depicting the, that's from Dark Side War because Jess is in it. Yes. Did Batman get a Green Lantern ring in that arc? I do not remember. He's, Batman's not using a Green Lantern ring, I don't think. He has a Green Lantern costume on, and he has a ring on his finger. Oh, he does. He does. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah I want to say he did. Yeah. Ooh, man, I do not remember that, because that's like straight out of John's Green Lantern run, too. I need to go back and check that, because um, that threw me off. Um, this issue did nothing to... Um, it, this, this issue did no more than the first did, in my opinion, to kind of flesh out this status quo or make it more interesting for me. This felt like it was spinning its wheels. Uh, we should note, by the way, there'll be an interview with Joshua Williamson, writer of this issue at the end of this podcast. Anyway, um, Vince, would you, do you agree with Zach or did this flesh out the story a little bit more for you um i still i still like the book and i'm interested in what it's trying to sell me but i i do agree with zach's take on this particular issue it felt like a lot of um it felt like a lot of uh 
stuff kind of repeating itself. Like Darkseid spent a lot of this issue saying like, you need to join me. Otherwise everything, uh, you know, the multiverse dies or whatever. And, you know, that's like half the issue. And I, I felt like none of it was like, none of it was building on anything. It was just kind of, you know what I'm saying? Like, um, it was kind of the same. It was just, it was just dark side making the same point over and over again. Mm-hmm. But I will say that I liked the end of the issue with, between uh, Corey and that priest from the, that alien alien race. Mm-hmm. I thought that little bit at the end was emotionally effective. And I thought it was a nice, it was a nice use of Corey's character, a side of her character that we have not gotten to see in a long, long time. Right. Or at least it feels that way. Yeah. So I thought that that was a really nice beat to end the issue on. And I just wish that, like, like again, we get the premise of this book. That 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 part with Darkseid in the beginning, I feel. I, like, I know they had to do the Darkseid reveal on the last page of issue one, even though we already knew. Right. Like, and that's, that's what... Comics are. Right. That's what solicitations spoil for, for comics, because... If if we just go into this series knowing that Darkseid is Darkseid is, then we could skip the first like eight or nine or ten pages of this comic. That all could have been packed somehow in the end of last issue, at least from a storytelling flow perspective. Because I feel like now by the end of this one, we're just or maybe we're not even there yet to what the, the mission statement of this book is going to be, you know? Well, I mean, I think that the sort of um, the obvious answer is that Darkseid's going to come save the day in next issue, like to stop Corey from essentially going like supernova. Mm-hmm. Isn't that how the issue ends with her? Essentially? Yeah, she's like yeah. she can't control the. Yeah, yeah, and then they're going to start to trust him after that, or not not trust him, maybe, but you know, decide to work with him after they see him do that. Um. Um, I just want I want the space odyssey adventures. Yes. Now, you know, I wanted to get to that. One thing I will say that I did really one. uh, So something obviously the art is really, really good. Um, And I liked some of the character moments. I thought Azrael is really cool in this or really good. I thought Williamson used him really well here. I feel like some of the antagonism between some of the characters is really weird. Um, particularly between Jess and Cyborg. But maybe not. I mean, I guess they weren't really on the Justice League together that long. She even Jess makes even that point. That. Yeah. yeah. She's also a cop, so... Yeah. And, uh, she's a space cop. She's a cop. Um, yeah, I, I generally did really like the characterization here. I feel like he Williamson did a really good job with playing these kind of um you know atypical characters off of each other. Yeah, I I wonder how much of this issue suffers from the fact that they had to rewrite the first few issues. 
It really mm-hmm. makes me wonder. Like, <laughs> doesn't it? Because I, you know, I mean, obviously Williamson is a friend of the show, and we're we're big fans of him. But I feel like these first two issues feel very decompressed for his type of storytelling, and I wonder if that's just because they needed to essentially put a hold on things for a little while, and so it was easiest to just let him spread the story over two issues instead of put it all in one. Yeah, I could see that. Decompressed is like, yeah, that's exactly that. Much more eloquently, I think. Um encompasses my critique of the issue Mm -hmm. um but i will say like this is uh, two things i want to say about this the first is i'm with you vince i wish that this arc didn't have to happen and we could have just had like a five page summation of all of this and start this team on space adventures because my fear is that how short these series tend to run now that we're not going to get that we're going to spend six or eight issues developing this team all of whom we met in the first issue instead of giving us adventures with them um so i i do i do feel that but i want to say in this issue's defense i feel like one of the things that the justice league proper book has done well so far is give the justice league these big things to bite off and chew that are fun one of the things the justice league book has not done as well i think is given the characters emotional investment into those big missions like obviously there are parts of those of those books that are emotionally resonant but it's more about we have to save the world versus how it's affecting them individually Whereas this is a very personal story for these characters. Even Jessica, who doesn't have the whole, like, old god worship aspect of it, she had a job from the Green Lantern Corps to protect this sector, and she failed at that job. You know, there's just... I I think that Williamson is doing a really nice job giving the characters individually stakes in this book instead of there just being sort of an overall macro plot. I, I I mean, there is that plot, obviously but I'm happy with how much Williamson has imbued real character moments into it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. We seem to be pretty much on the same page. Yeah. Yeah. I'm hoping that once they, uh, that once the first arc is over and, the scripts can appear hopefully as Williamson intended them to appear that the pacing will pick up a little bit. Yeah. But as long as we're on that subject, can I, can I just say something in general about comics like this? Yeah, sure. We, we say that from, it's a thing we've said before, like, Oh, once the first arc is over and everything's established, you know, then, then maybe, maybe it'll get good or it'll get into its like swing of things. And, the part that's regrettable about that is that most series only get to like 12 or 18 or 24 issues these days, you know? Yeah. So by spending an arc, which is usually four to six issues, you know, kind of ramping up to what your book is going to be, how many people have already fallen off, you know? Well, 
that's what I was saying before. Like, if this is supposed to be a space adventuring book, give us space adventuring. Mm-hmm. Don't mm-hmm. give us the reason for space adventuring. Yeah. And I, and I also think that, like, obviously not every book has to have an established... I, I, obviously some books are... This is a kind of book that really has to sell itself, establish itself, versus something like Justice League that had a really awesome first arc... Um, you know, some of the, some of the other things recently, I think have, you know, like Bendis' Superman stuff, which that's happening across two books, three, if you count Man of Steel, you know, but those of Supergirl, right. Four, if you count Supergirl. Yeah, exactly. So there's a little bit more breathing room there. Um, because even like Justice League Dark's opening arc, I think was, you know, it was obviously short, but it was mostly set up. Yeah. Mm. I wonder if that's something that we notice now more than we had before, or if that's always been an issue with first arcs of books. I mean, this is definitely not the, this is nowhere near like the first arc of the new 52 justice league. So there's that. Green Lantern's got this. Gosh. <laughs> I was actually recently looking at some of our old articles and I forgot that was the opening graphic of all of our articles. It was the DC3's got this. Yeah. <laughs> uh, all right. That brings us to Old Lady Harley, number one, written by Frank Thierry, illustrated by Anaki Miranda. Um. Why was this have... good? It wasn't. Oh, I liked it. <laughs> oh, I didn't. You guys made me read this, and I liked it. <laughs> I said maybe Old Lady Harley, and Vince said I vote for Old Lady Harley. So That's because I liked it too, bitch. Oh, I didn't like this at all. Oh, man. Then, then some of the stuff I'm going to say about it is going to sound completely ridiculous to you. <laughs> Zach, you go first. The best okay. part was the fake Condiment King commercial. I'll start there. The best, the best part? That was the, yeah. Okay, the opening segment was good. Um, I really liked... The, let's just go beat by beat. I liked the opening segment. I liked the little flashback, flashback section that was in black and white with the splashes of color. That looked so good. Um... And then um, we just kind of get into it, and we get the Kraken Barrel. That whole bit, <laughs> I, I felt like every joke just stuck its landing. It was just, yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, except for my, my, Calamari May was a little, <laughs> I don't know. Um, but then, um, you know, we get these weird Clockwork Orange guys. Uh, Fleck and the Laughing Boys. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Fleck and the Laughing Boys. Um, we get uh, Red Tool with his uh, Springman legs. Mm-hmm. And then we get to go back to Gotham and get some cool Azrael robots. And then uh, non-Dan Jurgens Batman Beyond. I'll, the, I'll the, call... first, the first good costume of the, Batman, of the post-rebirth uh, Batman Beyond, right? You're right. Yeah. So, uh, I, yeah, I... I 
a lot of checks in the in the okay column here for this comic. Mm-hmm. Brian, do you want to go or do you want me to just keep slobbing on what Zach said? Well, I I have one question and one comment. I'll start with my comment. My comment is that I literally the only notes I took for this issue were I keep waiting for a joke to land. <laughs> oh. And it never happened. Uh-huh. And uh, nothing has ever made me miss Sam Humphreys more than this. Wow. Now, my question is, how much is Frank Thierry paying you guys to uh, <laughs> to be positive about this garbage book? President Power Girl? I mean, I like that in concept. Batman like Beyond? Lexico? <laughs> Here, Lexico here's... bitches. <laughs> <laughs> there it is oh, man you to mvp um no brian okay here's my here's my criticism of the jokes uh, no matter who's writing harley her voice is very and i i think that this you know generally started or got really ramped up with the palmiati and connor stuff and no matter who's been writing her humphreys um. Uh. Who who wrote? Thierry. <laughs> yeah, Thierry. And then there was somebody. Uh, Chris Sabella wrote 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 her for a while, and uh, every one of them tries to cram as many bad puns into her dialogue as possible, and I don't like that. That gets tiresome. But every like visual joke or like pun. That was like in the art or like like Kraken Barrel is an example, you know, that kind of stuff that all totally worked for me. Um, I think that the art in this book is way better than it ever had any right to be. And I think this is something with that. This is probably Inaki Miranda's best work. Mm-hmm. Um, I say that. It remind now. Now, don't take this part out of context when I say it. OK, mm-hmm. it's going to sound ridiculous. But sweet, sweet cam. Yep. <laughs> but I think that that this, the way that this story is presented for Harley, is about as quote unquote like DC prestige comic as a Harley Quinn book in this current iteration could could be. And by that, what what I mean by that is like. This feels like the Harley equivalent of like um uh the man who laughs or a book like that. You know what I mean? Like the art that's being put forward in this is like top tier, you know? The statement that it's making about Harley, you know, I mean it is like like old man Logan is regarded as like one of the one of the better modern Wolverine stories Mm -hmm. like to me this is this by the end you know if it continues on this trajectory of art and kind of like the representation of Harley that it's going for this is like a perennial a potential perennial again as much as a Harley Quinn book can be you know what I mean um the, the just the the art is so great that t- it's like tank girl at times you know it's mm. man i thought this was good yeah yeah and also i want to piggyback off all of that in much the way that i think like old man logan was like both a 
a um, kind of treatise for for Wolverine. It was also sort of a like weird, twisted love letter to Marvel comics in general. And there's a lot of that here too, I think. Yeah. Twisted, you said. Twisted, yeah. <laughs> I mean it is twisted. It's very twisted. Yeah. But in a good and it's it's a it's a twisted I can get down for. And also I felt like uh, it used the Joker in a way that I didn't mind. Like when when we see the Joker in the first few pages, yeah, yeah, mostly off panel, except for that one flashback scene. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Also, what's with Penguin biting it all the time in these comics these days? <laughs> that poor guy can't catch a break. Wah, wah, wah. I know he didn't die in in Red Hood. They made that very clear, but like. You know they're 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 trying to merc penguin. I won't remember stand when for it. he was like the the next big thing when Gotham was coming out. Yes, yeah. Stupid sexy penguin. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I wonder if someone at DC thinks that Penguin was a member of the New Teen Titans. No, folks. Cop starts break dancing. Yep. <laughs> yeah. I- you know, I don't want to be too harsh on this because I, I I do think that Miranda's art was great, and I can see with Harley Quinn more than almost any other character that this shit just isn't for me. I'm just not a fan. I don't think I will ever really be a fan. I was disappointed because I haven't been enjoying Humphrey's run so much to see this just uh, essentially, you know bring my Harley enjoyment down a, a ton wasn't wasn't great for me but it's fine it, it's it is what it is man I will not I will not be reading future issues though so. I'm gonna I'm gonna go oh. <laughs> I'm trying Zach. to decide how hyperbolic I can be here Dude, Let's go, see. go buck wild Zach this might have been. <gasps> my third favorite issue of the week, possibly my second. It's it's up there with Books of Magic. It's action action books of magic. This, yeah, I th- I think that's probably where I fall. To quote a great Simpsons episode, I'd say you're a lying scumbag. <laughs> well, this is your fault. I wasn't no, even going to read it. It's Vince's fault, actually. But... <laughs> okay, this has been this is the collective use fault. <laughs> All right. Well, let's get to Titans number twenty-eight, written by Dan Abnett, illustrated by Clayton Henry, a drowned Earth prelude. We get Tempest back until they drop him off a spaceship, <laughs> possibly burning up an Earth's atmosphere at the end of the book. Speaking of going after and these another characters... Titan's, another Titan's dead. <laughs> yep. Now, of course, I don't think that that's really going to be the case. But... So either, but... But... He will probably at least be a fish boy for the rest of this arc. <laughs> it's going to be hilarious if, for for some reason that's completely out of context and has nothing to do with Sanctuary... 
the opening page of Heroes in Crisis is just Tempest splattered on the ground. <laughs> and then the camera pans up and you find out he like he landed like 20 miles away from Sanctuary or something. Yeah. Um, so I am the Titans boy of the podcast. So I've been probably higher on this book than others have been. Uh, I do like how this book. Yeah, I, I do mean you. Um, I like how this book has been keeping the loss of Dick and Roy at, at the forefront of it. Even if, you know, I, I think it's reasonable to talk about how this book is now thrown in the middle of a big crossover and how it should be about that crossover. But I think that one of the things that Abnett established in, in the first, in the, the beginning of Rebirth, was that these Titans are really all about friendship and family. And that, even though the team has changed since then, it's nice to see just the, the impact these team members have made on each other and how that, even though they're going through this possible world-ending event, they're still mourning their friends. I really like that aspect of this book. But not Wally. Well, okay, so I wanted to talk about this. So in the January solicits for the Flash Annual, it talks about Wally's death at Sanctuary. Mm -hmm. But that's the first time it's been mentioned anywhere. Do we think that's just a misdirect? Um, I'm like, I'm tired. I'm tired of trying to figure it out. Yeah. It's just very isn't it just very weird how Wally gets mentioned in this book and in the Flash this week and they never mention Sanctuary? Yeah. It is weird. And it is, it would be one thing if this was if there was an editor's box that said like this takes place before Heroes in Crisis, but because Roy is dead, it's just especially weird. Unless the second issue of Heroes in Crisis begins with Superman saying, like, no one can know while he's dead. <laughs> then, then, there's, then there's no reason for any of this. Yeah. What it's about a... this issue, guys? Mm. Vince, you go first. I didn't think much of it. Tell me why. I just don't. Ain't nothing but a heartbreak. To, to me, I don't feel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You have betrayed your first concert by. No, it was in sync, not Backstreet Boys. That song is Backstreet Boys. Yeah, but I saw in sync. Yeah, but you just quoted the Backstreet Boys. So I said you betrayed your first concert. Oh, uh, I see. I thought you Boys. meant. I thought you meant by betray betraying. I I I betrayed my. Self by revealing that. No, no, you're, you're I betraying. See, I see what you're saying. Allegiance to Insync. I see what you're saying. I was. I, I think I'd rather just hear you guys do this than <laughs> to say how I feel about this book. No, too bad. Go for I it. I just don't feel any of that stuff that you're talking about, Brian, about the family and the. Don't you think that like the fact that they're, and again, I, I recognize that this is. Like exactly my shit. So I, 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 I am not saying that this is a perfect comic or that my opinion on this is right in a way that I will say my opinion on Tom King sucking is right. Um, so this isn't the hill that you will die on. No, it's not. But but I just feel like you know, like there are moments 
in this book where people say things like, you know, what would Nightwing do? And Donna says, like, essentially, we can't can't worry about that anymore. And, you know, how when, when Garth sees her, he says, like, you know, I'm sorry about Roy. You know, there's just, there are these moments where in other, and part of that is just Abnet, I think, is really good at keeping, at keeping a, a group of characters consistent that, that doesn't, all right, let me, let me back up. I feel like sometimes when you're writing a team book, like, and this is a great Bendis thing, right? There would be Bendis issues of Avengers where they would sit around and drink coffee and eat breakfast. And those characters would seem to me to be totally different characters when it was in the middle of a big battle, right? There was a very, there was a big difference between the characters at rest and the characters at war. And I feel like this is the exact opposite of that, where no matter what is going on in Donna Troy's life, she's still mourning her friends. And the team is still adrift without Nightwing. And they didn't just, you know, get their shit together to fight this battle. This is still something they're dealing with. And, uh, yeah, I, I, to me, that's very clear in the book. But again, I recognize I'm, I am the exact target demographic for this book. Yeah, that's... Yeah, what you say is probably true. Um, one one other thing I'll say about this issue is that of all the Drowned Earth tie-ins or whatever so far, this was by far the least interesting to look at. And I think I think Clayton Henry does good character work, but what you know, I don't know if it was the story or or if it was him, but there there it is just not an interesting uh, setting. For these characters I was, was going to say, I think it's the setting that's the, that does this book in. in right. Way, yeah. Visually. There, there, there's nothing going on. Those other books had such beautiful... I'm, they both had images of those ships flying through the air that beat the pants off of this one. Um, and then, you know, very, various other locales and things to look at um, that are just way more interesting than what's going on visually in this book. I mean, and I and I and I say that place. as someone I say that as someone who likes Clayton Henry, but yeah, yeah. Go, go ahead. But most of this book takes place like in a ship, with characters discussing what to do. Mm-hmm. So that that's going to make it visually less appealing. But I I do like Clayton Henry getting more DC work. Yeah. He draws a handsome Beast Boy. Oh, hang on, I I gotta. I gotta send you guys a nut face. All right, second. all right. Well, everybody, just keep in mind that this is uh, Brian doing this. And anyway, you know, we'll do this during the break. Um, but yeah, uh, it's I... it's National Nut Day, by the way. Is it really? Yeah. Oh, then you guys are gonna like this even more. Um, but no, let's uh, let's take a break. When we come back, we will do our quick hits of the uh, the rest of the books this week. Hey everybody, Matthew from Marveling at the Movies here. Thanks so much for listening to one of the Multiversity Comics Podcast Network's episodes. I just wanted to take a quick minute of your time to tell you about something that the Marveling at the Movies team is doing. 
This year, we're participating in Extra Life, which is a 24-hour fundraising and gaming marathon to support the Children's Miracle Network of Hospitals. Game day is November 3rd, and we'll be joining thousands of gamers and dedicating our entire day to playing games and getting donations from friends like you. 100% of the donations are going to our local hospital, the Boston Children's Hospital. So if you'd like to donate, your donation is tax-deductible and will make miracles happen for families who desperately need them. To donate, you can check out our team page by going to extra-life.org slash team slash four zero two six three that's extra dash life.org slash team slash four zero two six three this should bring you to the team home of the cool dudes and you can follow us on social media all day for links to our live stream where you can watch matt alexis and myself get super annoyed at each other as the insanity of being awake for 24 hours begins to set in it's going to be a great time thanks and enjoy the show and we are back uh we're going to talk about three more books just very very briefly before we close out the show, again, there'll be an interview with Joshua Williamson from New York Comic Con at the end of this episode. Uh, this week, no books on the good list, except for the ones we already talked about, obviously, some of them. Uh, <coughs> Batman Beyond, Scarlet, and Wonder Woman are on the okay list. Batman Kings of Fear, Detective Comics, Raven Daughter of Darkness, and The Silencer are on the bad list. Come at us, bros. Um, so we're going to talk about three books right now. Uh, I'm going to lead the discussion on Batgirl, number 28, written by Marguerite Scott, illustrated by Paul Pelletier. So this is an issue that I think is pretty indicative of the Marguerite Scott era thus far, which is that there are a number of really nice character moments, not just for Babs, but there's that the detective that is on the take that... Um, there's a lot of like really dumb shit with him <laughs> and really, really over the top sort of like he's being controlled like a puppet moments in this book. But there's one page where we see him with his wife, which I believe is the addiction he has. Like it's a, it's like a second life experience or yes, something. He's, he's being given a simulation. And like, that was a really nice moment. Uh, it, that 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 scene is just handled really well. Even if everything about it, from a conceptual level, is not great, that particular scene was handled well. And there's another the scene with Gordon and Babs where they're arguing. You know, it's not the world's greatest scene, but it felt there were a couple of really nice character moments between the two of them there. And I feel like the personal stuff in this run has been relatively enjoyable, but everything else has been like subpar i don't think that a lot of the batgirl stuff was very good in this issue of batgirl the art is good though yes paul pelletier is great the art is good the 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 whole scene of babs escaping from the cops in the beginning of the issue is is wonderfully uh set into some kind of motion by by that art you know yeah you can you get a real sense of the way that the way that she gets out of it and looks great um, from Pelletier there. I would agree with you, Brian. Um, I just want to add one. I know we're supposed to be quick here. Uh, Fuck you. No, <laughs> no the, thing I, the thing I want to add is that I just kind of generally want this book and like Nightwing or whatever to get, get away from this whole dark web thing because... <laughs> You just say that because somebody from the dark web emailed you today. Yeah, I do say that. It spooked me. No, um, I don't want him to watch me pound off, all right? Um, 
At least not for free. <laughs> Patreon. Ah. Uh, <laughs> uh, good night, everybody. <laughs> That's. I don't have anything more to say. That's fine. Yep. No, say what you're gonna say, please. No, I was just gonna. I was just gonna say because I think it's. I think it's kind of cheesy. I think it's kind of being cheesily handled, and I don't yeah. think it's almost ever handled well in comics for whatever reason. You know, the, the dark web of 2018 is hackers of 1996. Yeah. Yep. And like, <laughs> like hackers are like the dark web. It's always like code crackers, slackers. Yeah. <laughs> Wasting time with all the chat room yackers. Nine to five, and add Hewlett Packard. What? Okay. Um, no, but like, it's always like uh, we're. I'm gonna stick a USB in this computer, and that means I can travel inside the computer and walk around or some shit. You know, it's, it's always it's like Mega Man Battle Network. <laughs> <laughs> Once again, Zach, I I give you the last word. <laughs> I tell you, that's the future I've I've been longing for. I mean, jetpacks and hoverboards are one thing, but yeah, I mean, I mean, well, we do, yeah, the yeah, yep. The problem is, is that it's going to be Mega Man Battle Network with a lot more internet Nazis than than we thought it <laughs> <they> would be. <laughs> oh man, I uh, just on the Nazi train here for a second. I recently showed my daughter Indiana Jones in the Last my Crusade. Daughter. My daughter. I love Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade very, very much. It's one of my favorite films, and there's, like, Hitler is a character in it, and, you know, she's six, and she was like, who are these bad guys? And I said, like, well, these are Nazis, and I, I, I said, you know, they were they were people who built an entire belief system around hating others and judging others for who they were and all this, and she was like, but this is in the past, right? There are no Nazis anymore. And I was like, ah. Oh, I have to tell her, don't I? I was like, yeah, there's still some Nazis, kid. Still some Nazis. And it's just crazy how when I saw that movie in 1989, it was, oh, no, Nazis are gone. Don't worry about Nazis. The world's gotten worse, guys. If I uh, if I had been born a week later, that would have been my um, fate-defining movie tagline. But instead, I get Hear No Evil, See No Evil by... Featuring Richard Pryor and Gene Wilder. When were you born? What, what's your actual birth date? I'm not going to say it on the internet, Brian. Oh, sorry. Well, the, what month the dark were you born? web. What month were you born? May. Yeah, I was going to say, I saw that movie on my seventh birthday in 1989. So not my birthday's in June, so. There you go. There we go. I was in the same theater, and I was a week old. <laughs> it's our lost moment. Yeah. You've heard about that real life loss moment between Lindelof and Carlton Cuse, right? I probably have. I don't recall it off the top of my head. So, uh, one of them has in their office a photo from when they went to Disneyland in the 80s, and the other one is in the photo. It's incredible. So, like, they lived in different states, and they were, and they were, you know, it just randomly happened. They were both at Disneyland on the same day in the same region to get a photo together. Oh, man. Italian chef kiss. Alan Moore couldn't write it. Exactly. All right, Vince, talk about The Flash. I think Vince... Did Vince die? Has he shuffled off this mortal coil? Can you still hear me? 
Now we can. There you go. I mute. I, I I guess I muted myself during your uh, during your inane Lindelof bullshit. Um, <laughs> Just wait till 2019, baby. Yeah. This show becomes 80 percent inane Lindelof bullshit. Well, enjoy the DC two, you guys. The, 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 it doesn't uh, it doesn't sound as snappy anymore, but that's what you're gonna get. It's just going to be part of our Patreon content. We watch The Watchmen. <laughs> All right. So The Flash, number 57, written by Joshua Williamson, art by Scott Collins. Um, a couple things I wanted to talk about in this issue because I think my overall feeling on these uh, sort of like <clears throat> rogue-centric featuring issues where, or, you know, the arcs where they kind of pick a rogue and, and, and dig a little deeper. Um, I've not been so much interested in the a plot, although I think it, they've been certainly passable, but I love that Williamson sneaks a lot of the sort of over overarching like narrative arc that he's been on uh, into these issues, like on the, on the periphery, you know? So like, we get another moment where we learn more about Iris and what she remembers from before, from the pre-flashpoint, right? Mm -hmm. There's a moment where she talks about how she was studying these new forces before flashpoint, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, Um, based on what she was wearing, it looked like it was from when her and Barry were in the future. Yeah. In the, gosh, was that the Silver Age? Maybe she had on the purple future clothes. Uh huh. But I don't remember. Is that like, so maybe you guys can help me out here. Was there a time that that would have made sense for Iris to be doing in the flash being the pre flashpoint, even though we may not have been because this obviously, you know, this is seven years later or eight years later or whatever, but is there something where there's is there like a clever link like oh it would have made sense that Iris was doing that at this particular time in pre flashpoint you know what i'm saying yeah i i don't i don't believe so but i believe but i think that the the sort of cheat answer here is that because Iris is a journalist you can say at any point like well she didn't tell Barry about every story yeah. she was working on on page Right. You know what I mean? And so Yep, you know. and so that that was what I figured, but I thought like maybe there was something that you got maybe there was like a thread not to do with any new forces or anything, but like Iris had disappeared for some reason and she was deep deep in her work or something. And well no, I think I think that thing. like I think like this is her in the future studying them. Like when her and Barry went to the future and that's when she was doing it. Based on okay. like what she's so then, wearing. Right. Okay. But you're saying that was Silver Age? I think so. Like oh, that man. was when like Barry had killed uh he had killed the reverse flash and got off for it, like he wasn't convicted, but then he went to the future. Mm-hmm. Correct me if I'm wrong. I don't know if that was the Silver Age or if that was the Bronze Age. It might have been Bronze Age. Yeah. Silver Age Flash is like when he cooks a turkey by rubbing it. <laughs> that literally happened in an issue. Yeah, or I know. It's a, it's a that... roast or something where like he's late, like, he's late for cooking dinner for Iris, so he just rubs a rubs a piece of meat and cooks it. Yeah, he rubs one out. Let's put it that way. <laughs> Thank you. 
A lot of J.O. talking tonight. Yeah, uh, what's, the, what's the deal with that? I don't know, Mr. Jackoff. What do you, what do you have to say? And then we got another little moment with um, Hunter Zolomon mm-hmm. and on Earth 18 taking down like the cowboy flash or whatever, which I just love. I love that. I love these little like epilogues that, that Williamson sometimes putting into these issues, you know? And, and I love his use of the multiversal flashes. Yes, of course. Zach, I believe. Are you closing us out here? I am closing us out, but really quick. Apparently uh, we can look at this more later, but Wikipedia says that, um, Around the time of Flash 174, we find out that Iris was born in the 30th century. So there's a little kink there for you. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I was going to talk about uh, the Terrifics. Um, oh, what number is this? This is number nine. Yeah, number nine. Uh, yeah, written by Jeff Lemire, illustrated by Jose Luis. Still doing the Lord's work in terms of art here. Um, this issue, I I liked this issue in the same way I've liked the kind of like preceding issues. I love the the funky alternate world stuff and all of the Tom Strong stuff. Um, feels very reminiscent to some of the tones from. Uh, Cave Carson. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. It's it, it, there's a lot of those vibes, just more super heroic. Um, but I want I don't I wanted to bring this issue up because this is kind of the end of this arc, sort of, in that we get the identity of Doctor Dread or Doc Dread. Um, yeah, and it's Java, <laughs> which is a great, awesome, stupid reveal. <laughs> What do you think, Brian? Oh, that Java. That's what I think. Oh, that Java. That rascally Java. No, I thought this was fun. I, I think that this book maybe tricked us in the beginning into thinking it was going to be this really heady, really deep Lemire book. Because so many of his books have all these layers to them. And I think the book has been just way more fun than that. And I'm fine with that. I think the Tom Strong characters have been used really well. And as of the January solicits, they're still hanging around, which is interesting also. Mm-hmm. Um, or at least they come back, I should say. I don't know if they're there the whole time. But yeah, I thought this was a fun issue. I, uh, I, I still think that this book, no matter who's drawing it, has had the best, one, uh, the best Plastic Man art we've ever seen. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Detective Plastic Man at the beginning of this issue. Yeah. Kind yep. of the 90s eyes bugging out of his head. It's good. Well, that does it for our show for tonight. What comes up next week, guys? Uh, um, oh, I had it pulled up. Next week is a weird, weird week, you guys. Oh, is next week a cursed week? It's it's very cursed. It's not a cursed cavalcade of comics, but it's a <laughs> cursed week of comics. A, a cavalcade yeah. of cursed comics. Yeah, All right, we, go. <laughs> we got 
Batman Secret Files. We've got oh. Deathstroke Yogi Bear. We've got hey, no- number one DC publishing uh, published book, Doom Patrol, uh, number 12. Right, Zach? <laughs> We've got Green Lantern Huckleberry Hound Special. We've got Hex Wives. Oh, yeah. I'm excited for that. Yeah, that, that, yeah. Um, we've got Justice League Aquaman Drowned Earth. We've got Justice League Dark and Wonder Woman The Witching Hour. I know, right? We've got Nightwing McGill Gorilla. We've got. Now, is, is this Dick or Rick Grayson? McGill Gorilla. <laughs> it's. It's. Uh, I can't think of anything funny anymore. Um, we've got Superman Top Cat special number one. We've got Terrifics annual number one. We've got the actual best comic DC is publishing Wildstorm number eighteen. So, I thought for some reason it was a Heroes in Crisis week, but I guess not. No, I think, I think it is. After. No, I well, I think I just checked today and it said it was that week on DC, but maybe they changed it. I checked DC's website. I really did. They said it. Well, what do they know? Usually, it's up to date by now. It's usually not. Yeah, it says 1031. Here's in crisis number two. Really? Yeah. Well, I wonder if it, because it's coming out of Halloween, if it'll wear the costume of an actual good comic. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. Uh... Uh, until then, you can find two thirds of us on Twitter. I am at Brian is an app. And I'm at Wilker Fox. And Vince has been learning the fine, fine art of semaphore, which is uh, communication through flags. So if you happen to find yourself... Withering with Heights movies, by Semaphore. Yes. It's a Monty uh, Python sketch. Oh, I'm aware. I'm aware. Uh, so if you happen to find yourself in the Twin Cities with a flag, give him a shout out. Yeah, unless it's one of those don't tread on me flags. I don't want any of that. Don't, oh, don't, but what don't. if you're doing semaphore with that flag? Is that cool? I, I don't know if that's good or bad. Um, what What if they bought that flag because they thought it was a Metallica piece of merchandise because they have that song, Don't Tread on Me? <laughs> I'd say Metallica's corny as fuck, too. So, um, <laughs> uh, this coming from the guy who has somehow never seen Metallica, some kind of monster, the greatest documentary ever made. Some kind of monster. What is it about the freaking Joker? <laughs> you wish, maybe. Um, I am early voting tomorrow, and I hope that anybody who's listening that has a chance to will do the same. Um, so there's that. Forget all this flag bullshit uh, Brian's talking about. Uh, I vote the old-fashioned way. Uh, I, again, I can't think of anything funny at this point. <laughs> no, and that wasn't even a funny comment. It's just, uh, yeah, go vote. I was going to say something about, what, the Chicago way or whatever, where the, where the people in the graveyard vote or whatever conservatives say about yeah. about that. What's, yeah. the, what's the New Jersey way? Uh, with some Taylor ham. <laughs> now that I can get behind. I know you can. All right, folks, thanks for listening. We will talk to you next week. Hello, podcast listener. I'm Kevin. I'm Jess. And I'm Nick. And we are Make Mine Multiversity, a monthly podcast discussing all things Marvel Comics. 
Each month, we will be discussing Marvel news and looking at some of their major recent comic book or movie releases. We also look at older storylines, character histories, and Marvel's place in the overall comics market. We have a variety of perspectives. The recent Marvel fan. The jaded longtime reader. And the reader who's finally digging into Marvel's back catalog after a decade of avoidance. If you want to know what books made me cry this month. What books made me almost cry this month. And what books I wish would make me feel something. Check out Make Mine Multiversity, a Marvel podcast. The fourth Friday of every month on multiversitycomics.com, Apple Podcast, or your podcatcher of choice. And make mine Marvel. Multiversity. Multiversity. It's 2018? God, it's 2018, my goodness. With my friend, Josh Williamson. Good, how are you? I'm exhausted. I'm really tired. Last night, Tom King and I were out. I'm on name drop, because it's a true story. Uh, We were literally up at like 3 in the morning eating french fries while sitting on the street like a pair of homeless people. So they're chilling. At one point, he was like, you know there's couches in the hotel, right? I'm like, yeah, whatever. Were they good french fries? Yeah, they were good. They were good. But then we both realized like we had something to do today. We're like, oh, no, we got to go. But, yeah. So you are at issue 50, what, of The Flash now? Six? Uh, yeah, 56 is coming out next. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I'm further out. Like, I'm writing right. 70 this week. But, wow. you know, I, 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 we, I really do plan a lot of stuff really far in advance. Like, I know the last page of issue 81. Like, that's, that's where I, how I work. Are you gunning for 100? Yeah, of course. I mean, listen, I have the story to do it. I know all the story beats. But, you know, who knows what could happen. But they know. I know. Like, we have a plan. So we'll see. We'll see. I'm hoping, though. You heard it here first. 100 issues guaranteed. So, uh, no, you know, you're right in The Flash, and The Flash has been such a central character of Rebirth, both Barry and Wally, and now we see Bart coming back. There's been so much sort of Flash resurgence in the last couple of years. I know The Flash character you've always wanted to write. We've talked about that in the past. What have you done with Barry that you feel like is the most important thing you've given to Barry since taking over? A personality? Good answer. I love him, though. And I know, I, and I think he gets a bum rap in the past. You know, I think there was a lot of times people thought that he wasn't the kind of character that had, like, a lot of personality. But he, he did have personality, but I think it got lost along the way in some ways. Look, I read those stories, and he had a lot of personality, a lot of character. But I think what happened was, and this, and I, I, this is the thing I want to explore with him a lot, is I think there were a lot of times people would, um, like, what happened was Mark Wade started writing Barry from Wally's POV, right? Where it was like, Wally always looked up to Barry, saw him as his idol, and he was this perfect person, and no one ever speaks ill of the dead, and he sacrifices himself to save the, you know, the multiverse. Everyone started to sort of see him in this way, and, and Wally always looked up to him, right? And I think after that, once you get around, like, Return of Barry Allen and some of the stories in there, I think everyone, like, you get to, like, JLA Year One, Brave and the Bold, those are all Mark Way stories, I think everyone started writing Barry still from Wally's POV. Everybody treated him as a martyr. Yeah. Even, even when you were doing a story that took place in the past, people wrote him in, in this very honorific way. And I think that's actually not real to the character. But I think he knows that now. And it's impossible to live up to those expectations. Yeah. And he's constantly trying to. And so that's a lot of that I'm trying to explore his character and really get him to a place where I think he is where people want him to be, but I want I want to earn it. Right. I don't want to just say it. We want to earn it. So right. I think that's what I feel like I brought to the character. And we've tried to we've tried to add the mythology and build on it, and really build on the relationships between him and Wally, and him and Wallace, and build a relationship between him and Eobard. So there's really a lot of pieces that we're trying to 
just build on mythology, but also build on those relationships so they're not just like... Because sometimes in, in comics, I think we're just told, right? Like, Batman and Superman, we're kind of told a lot of times they're best friends, right? And, and it's interesting. In some dynamics, you could argue they're best friends because they're the most, you know... Scott can come through. <laughs> Say hi to both diversity again. Sure. I'm late to meet Doyle. I'll see you okay, later. I'll actually. A little surprise oh. drop in by Scott Snyder there. Um, so, where was? Oh, so I think it's like this thing where sometimes we're like, oh, Batman and Superman are best friends because they're the most popular characters, right? right. It's exactly, like, yeah. like it's a weird meta answer. But a lot of people have done work to work on that relationship, so you see why they're friends. I wanted to do that with the Flash family and the Flash mythology is continue to build on those characters and continue to build the relationships and show why they're a family. And that's another thing, too. When I got the job, a lot of people were like, well, bring back the Flash family, bring back the Flash family. And I'm like, that was a Wally thing. That wasn't a Barry thing. Right. You know, even when Jeff brought him back, that was part of the story was that he wasn't the family man. You right. know, it was, it, was, it was a lot of pressure on him. Whereas, and that was, that was a Wally thing. Like, Wally, Wally built the family. Right. So... You know, I want to want to show that and, and, and work on it. Just continue to build that. Absolutely. Uh, let's switch over to Justice League Odyssey for a second. It's brand new. First issue just came out. I know it was delayed a little bit because of yeah. reasons. That uh, happens. Yeah, exactly. But you have this team that you know has a bit of New Teen Titans in there with Cyborg and Starfire. It has a little of the Bat Family with Azrael. It has Dark Side. It's this crazy concept. Did you have the idea first and then build the team around that? Or did you say, I want to use these characters and then found a story that fit those characters? I mean, we had a lot of meetings about that book and a lot of conversations about the characters and sort of building that dynamic. And we kept, you know, because that's the thing. When you build a team book, you want to make sure the characters can bounce off each other and you get story from them bouncing off each other. With that, we knew there was a lot of story coming out of No Justice and Metal they wanted to play with. And so then it became a matter of, like, we have all these big plot beats we want to do. Which characters are going to be interesting to write reacting to what, right? So I started building this. The two that I always knew we were going to have was Cyborg and Starfire. Those are the two I was going to get. Eventually, we started talking about a Green Lantern, and I asked for Jessica. Nice. Like, it was either Kyle or Jessica. Um, and I really was like, can I have Jessica? I think she's a cool character. I think she'd be interesting to work with on this. Uh, I liked what Sam had done and what Tim Seeley had done and what Jeff had done before that. I thought she was really interesting. Because I really liked her in Jeff's stuff when he was doing Justice League. Agreed. Yeah, so I was like, hey, let's, can we, you know, can I bring her in? They said yes. Then I remember being like, and then can I, uh, can I have Azrael? Like in space? Like a space armor? And I asked over the phone, and I thought they were going to be like, oh, you're crazy, no, never. And then they were like, yeah, you can do that, that makes sense. And I was like, oh, wait, what? <laughs> well, now i got to figure this out. That was just an idea. Now i got to figure out how this is going to work. But he ended up, like, a lot of really big stuff in the book that I love comes out of him being uh-huh. there. Like, it was like, some of my favorite parts of the book come from Azrael being there. I think it's a really inspired and unexpected choice. Yeah, and, and with, with Darkseid, he came around because we were talking a lot about Orion. But we were talking about Orion because we wanted Darkseid. It was this thing of, like, we wanted Orion to use this to get the Darkseid. And then at one point, you know, someone was just like, why don't we just use Darkseid then? Let's just cut the thing out. And I was like, well, how does that work? And then we started talking about it. And we're like, well, we understand that he's at a weaker power base right now. We understand he's gone through a lot of changes in the last two years. And then it became a conversation of, like, well, how do we get him back to being the badass, like, you know, monster god right. you know dark side is how do we do that with this this version of him how do we get him there and it was like oh that's we do it in this book we show that progression of how to get him back so that's how that is how that team was built 
That's awesome. I'm really looking forward to seeing where that story goes. We're going to have some fun now. We have five rapid-fire questions to end the interview with. Okay. So get your brain jogged and ready to go. Did you see what we announced today? I, I did, and I almost forgot to mention it. Yeah, year one. Yeah, yeah. Uh, You and Howard Porter. Yeah. Happening in the Flashbook. Right? It's in the Flashbook. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How many issues have there been? It's six. Six? What is it? Almost three months. Yeah, exactly. Starts in May. May? Okay. So. The thing where I think when people get to issue 69 and we're going into the year one stuff, so you'll see why. Like, there's a, there is a story plot reason why we're telling that story when we're telling it. Yeah. And then you'll see what comes out of it. It'll, it'll all add up, and you'll know why it's in the book and why it's important. Is this the first retelling of the Flash origin in this way in some time, right? It's been a very long time. Never really done it. Like, you know, Showcase 4 is really it. Like, no one ever really did it. And remember, by the time they started revisiting Origins in that way, like, really revisiting Origins in that way, he was dead. That's a really good point, yeah. You know, so when all the... the, the they did, you know, Batman's obviously, and Green Arrow's had one. Even even with Superman, when they relaunched, and he was able to do Man of Steel with John Byrne, which was very year one-ish. You know, that was that's all post-Christ and Infinite Earth. Yeah. And then Wally gets one, because Wally had Born to Run, which was in the Flash title. Right. So we've never been really able to do one that is a longer-form modern history origin story for Barry. And so we've been building this story idea, and I've wanted to do it since the beginning, and now we get to do it, and Howard's going to draw it, and it's awesome. And we're, like, super, super excited. That's so cool. And six issues is the perfect length for that kind of story, I feel like. Yeah, and I think this story we want to tell how big it gets. Uh, and I think it's going to take some definitely interesting twists and turns. And it's not going to be exactly what you think it's going to be. I think people are going to be like, oh, I know exactly what that is. And it's like, just read it. And then we'll have this conversation again. So, yeah, you'll see. I look forward to just reading it. All right, Zach, keep keep going. We're talking Pokemon, Brian, so you got to give us yeah, a little... Yeah, I'll cover your ears. I'll glaze over and play with myself. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't think you liked Pokemon that much. I'm thinking about other stuff. Don't worry. 